0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, Thanks again for joining us on this class session. Uh, We left off with Foreign Correspondent. Uh, We're gonna talk today about another thriller. Um, Here's the problem. (laughs) I have painted myself into a corner by trying not to present my opinions, my interpretations of these filmmakers' films and uh, try to just give you what Hitchcock talked about. What Try to give you insights from the masters themselves. That's why I open every episode with, Welcome to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. You're not learning this from me. You're really learning it from them. I'm just synthesizing, condensing, sometimes quoting directly from, from these masters. Um, the problem is, <laughs> this film, Hitchcock, really only spoke about the last 40 minutes. And the last 40 minutes are very, very different from the first hour. So I can't talk about this this film in particular without giving you spoilers. So, you have a choice. I'm gonna give you a couple of tidbits. We're gonna answer a question from, from one of our listeners today. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about suspense. And then I'm gonna dive into to the movie and spoil all of it for you, which I, because I did all this research beforehand, I already knew what happened, and it, it kind of hurt my enjoyment of the film. It really did. Uh, and I don't want that to happen for you guys. So if if you don't want the movie spoiled, I'll give you a couple things at the beginning, and then I'll let you know when I'm getting into the heavy stuff, and then you can you can close it out, come back later, that's fine. If you want the movie spoiled, I'll spoil it for you. So just a fair warning, everyone knows what's going on before we get started. The movie we're gonna talk about today is Suspicion. You can find it on Amazon to rent digitally for like a few bucks. Uh, so if you wanna close out, go watch it now or whenever and then come back, that's awesome. Uh, in fact, I would love for you guys to do that because I think this is, a, this is definitely a film worth, worth seeing and worth talking about. But I really don't wanna spoil it for you. But if you're – if you don't think you're actually going to sit down and watch it, that's fine. We can talk about this. Uh, like usual, everything I'm talking about I'm trying to talk about in a way that is specific to the film but you don't have to have seen the film. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm just going to dive right into this. So first let's start off with a question from our listeners. Um, I said last time that I was going to include like a little Q&A thing. And uh, and yeah, I, 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 I actually got a question. Um, <laughs> Kind of surprised. One of our listeners uh, by the name of Wesley Lowne wrote in and asked me if, if Hitchcock actually appeared in every film that he did. Hitchcock, as some of you may know, are, is famous for his cameos. He has a cameo performance in, to answer your question, Wesley, most of his movies. Uh, not all of them. Uh, there are 13 films that Hitchcock, well, <laughs> technically there's 13 films that Hitchcock doesn't have a cameo in. Technically, uh, the the cameo thing started started back with the Lodger. If you listen to the first episode, which I know is really poor sound quality, I am aware of that. I apologize. Uh, you go back to the first episode. That's first. That's Hitch's first cameo appearance. Uh, his back is to the camera, and he's he's in the newspaper. Uh, Offices, And the reason that that started was because he didn't have enough extras when, he, when they made the movie. Uh, so it started out as a utilitarian thing. And as he grew in fame and people began to easily recognize him I and mean, he became a household name, he, he, he started doing it almost as, uh, almost as a necessity. And he, he realized that people were looking for him in the movie. So he would intentionally, as, as his fame grew, he would intentionally put himself earlier in the movie rather than later so that people wouldn't be looking for him through the whole movie. So there's 13 films that he doesn't appear in. They're all from his British period, and none of them we've talked about on this, on the, in, in any of our class sessions. They're all movies that, that either came from Hitch's period where he had kind of a downturn um, between Blackmail and The 39 Steps, or they came after that period before he moved to the States, and then there's the one technicality, and that one technicality is an American movie called Rope. And He's not in the movie Rope, really, because uh, we're going to talk about that movie. So I'm going to try not to give too much away because I, I, I really think that's a fantastic movie to, to talk about on a filmmaking podcast. Um, but it's a movie that takes place all in, all in an apartment, and there's only so many characters because it was based on a play takes place all in the same place, only so many characters. And Hitch didn't want to cast himself in his own movie and give himself like a real speaking part. But out, outside of the apartment, there's a cityscape. And in the cityscape, if you look very, very carefully, I think around minute 56 or 58, there is a red neon sign on that cityscape that is the, the now infamous silhouette of Hitchcock. So while he's not technically in the movie... They were very intentional about putting something that if you're really looking for it would be recognizable as Hitchcock so that he would have his, quote, cameo. So thank you, Wesley, for writing in. That's the answer to your question. No, he didn't appear in in every single one of his movies. There's 13 that he didn't appear in and technically a 14th depending on how you count that one. Um, But none of those movies – every movie we've talked about and every movie we will talk about, there's a Hitchcock cameo. So if you're watching these movies at home – Feel free to look for him. Uh, some, of, some of them, he's harder to spot in than others. Some of them I've had to kind of cheat and look up online, but I'm not going to tell anybody that. Um, okay. Uh, this is a quote from Alfred Hitchcock. Again, we're going to talk about suspense. This is a, a little bit briefer. And, 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 and this is something that Hitchcock said in an interview in reference to this film but doesn't give anything away. Uh, In the essay, The Quality of Suspense, he writes, it is contingent, suspense is contingent on an element of danger, mysterious and unknown if possible, or if the danger is known, then then as an inexorable or as insurmountable peril as may be imagined. He's got a lot of 25 cent words in there, 50 cent words in there. What is the phrase, 25 cents, 50 cents? Dollar? Silver dollar? I don't know. A lot of college-educated words in there. So let me kind of break that down. Suspense is contingent on an element of danger. Well, that makes sense. You have to have danger. The audience has to feel that that a person they care about on the screen is in danger for there to be suspense. Well, that makes sense. Mysterious and unknown if possible. Now, that's an interesting caveat that the suspense might might be – Difficult to put your finger on, but you know something's lurking there. I think um, I think the first about half hour of Psycho might be a really good example of that. And we'll get to Psycho later. <laughs> but, um, yeah, actually, yeah, Psycho or even the first uh, few minutes of The Man Who Knew Too Much, the American remake very specifically, uh, kind of touches on that idea of this mysterious and unknown element of danger. But then he backs that up and says, or if the danger is known, then as inexorable or as insurmountable peril as may be imagined. Now that's interesting. But that makes sense. I mean, that's storytelling one on one. I don't know how many storytellers I've heard say, the stakes have to be as high as possible. You have to take these characters as far as they'll go so that, so that as hitch puts it they may be in as insurmountable peril as may be imagined now that's obviously contingent on the story you know not every story requires life and death stakes most romantic comedies don't end up with someone's someone with a gun to their head but the peril there in a romantic comedy could be the the danger of losing the love of the love of your life or or something to that effect, right? Um, movie that comes to mind is Five Hundred Days of Summer, which actually is more than just losing losing uh, the the love of his life, the supposed love of, of of his life, but losing the one person who he feels can bring him happiness in his life, losing out on a lifetime. Of happiness with that one special person—that is as insurmountable peril as may be imagined for five hundred days of summer. So, I'm sorry that's short, but at this point, if you don't want the movie spoiled, this is as far as you go. Until you go track down suspicion, it's not hard. It's right there on Amazon. It's a few bucks to rent. If you really wanted to, you could just buy it. That's eh, a little bit more expensive. I understand, but yeah, this is as far as you go. I'm gonna give you five seconds to shut this off or else you're going to get something spoiled. Here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Sorry, too late. Okay. Suspicion is the story of a young, well-to-do woman named Lena, who marries who she thinks is another young, well-to-do young man named John. But after their rushed marriage and whirlwind honeymoon, she realizes that John isn't the man she thought he was, and eventually begins to suspect him to be... A murderer. Now that's classic Hitchcock. I don't know. Um, <laughs> God, there was there was a quote that he gave in some interview or essay where he said, uh, "If he did a remake of Cinderella, everyone would be looking for the body." Um, <laughs> 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 so yeah, you've got this. You've got what starts out as a as as a romance film and turns into a thriller. And that's what I was talking about where the first hour doesn't really match the, the last 40 minutes. So what is that? Th- uh, three-fifths of the movie um, don't really match the rest of it. Um, but it works if if you're kind of – if you don't know that, I think. <laughs> one of the things that Hitch talked incessantly about with this movie was was that this movie had the same problem that The Lodger did. If you guys at all listen to the first episode and about The Lodger – or actually, excuse me. I didn't talk about this till the second episode. I gave everyone a chance before the next episode to to go watch the lodger. And I said, "That's right." So second episode, went blackmail, went back and recapped a little bit um, the issue. So if you <laughs> if you haven't seen the lodger, here's another spoiler. I'll give you five seconds. One, two, three, four, five. Here we go. Second spoiler of the day. The lodger suffered from casting. Uh, the man who played the lodger. Ivor Novello was a big, big star at the time and not the kind of star that the audience would have wanted to be a murderer. So he clearly actually couldn't have been the murderer that the landlords think he might be. And the same issue came in this movie with Cary Grant. Cary Grant was a big, big star, very likable star, very uh, suave debonair. You know, real gentleman. Or at least that was the public persona that the that 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 the studios had very carefully crafted around him. I'm sure he was in real life too. He seems like a nice guy. So in Hitchcock on Hitchcock, Volume Two, uh, an essay entitled or an or an interview entitled Hitchcock, Mastermaker of Mystery, Hitchcock very bluntly says no one would have believed that Cary Grant was a murderer. It just it, it just didn't make sense. The best analogy that I can come up with or the closest equivalence would be if uh, if Tom Hanks was cast as a murderer we just wouldn't believe that that wouldn't make any sense to us he, he, he's too nice he couldn't kill anybody at least not intentionally so that really plagued the production in fact um, uh, he said in a in an interview entitled the John Player Lecture That one of the studio heads had gone so far as to pull everything out of the movie that would even suggest Cary Grant was a murderer. And Hitch had gone off to do something else and came back and somebody came up to him and said, you should see what that guy did to your movie. The movie (laughs) movie ran 55 minutes long. Because he had cut all of this all of this plot out that was so crucial to the whole thing working in the first place. So Hitch had to go back and reconstruct his movie. But the other issue was was the Hays Code or the production code of the era. They didn't have ratings in the 40s. Ratings didn't come out till much later. You know, with PG, G, PG-13, etc. All there was was a production code which had very definitive rules that says you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't show this, can't show that. And one of those was... Any murderer, much less any villain, really, had to be punished, and typically, murders, murderers had to either be killed or suffer, you know, uh, heavy legal um, punishment. So now you've got another issue: you've got one of your major stars playing a suspected killer. He can't actually be the killer, so that that eliminates half of the possible endings to your movie. If he can't actually be the killer because then he'll have to... (laughs) 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 Uh, Because then he'll have to uh, die or something like that, then there's there's no point. Not to mention, Hitchcock also said, and really to have the suspected killer shown to be the killer is just really anticlimactic. If you just prove everything that the audience has assumed, uh, what... There's there's no twist. There's there's nothing at the end that's really satisfying. So, for example, um, in an interview that he did with the American Film Institute with AFI, uh, this this was captured in another Sidney Gottlieb book that I haven't really talked about called just called Hitchcock Interviews. Um, Hitch talks about one of the different endings that they came up with, and one of them was was that Cary Grant playing John brings um, Joan Fontaine playing Lena. Uh, this poisoned glass of milk. And she knows it's poisoned, but she drinks it anyway. But before that, she writes a letter to her mother explaining everything, saying, you know, um, I know he's the murderer, but I love him, uh, but I do think that society should be protected. Um, she drinks a glass of milk, she dies, but before that gives gives her husband the letter and he mails out the letter that supposedly would would eventually bring him down, would would, would get him caught. The problem was... <laughs> Number one, you're dealing with production code. That's probably not on the nose enough for them. It's probably not obvious enough. But the other issue is it didn't test well with audiences. And that was another lesson uh, learned about the United States for Hitch was that typically unhappy endings don't do well in the U.S., especially not in that era. So now what do you do? Well... So if he's not the murderer, well then maybe he's suicidal. So they come up with that idea. Okay, well maybe he's suicidal. Okay, well what if we have him commit suicide? Well that's still an unhappy ending, so we can't do that. So you're left with very few options. You're left with the ending that's in the movie, which is he's suicidal and they 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 commit to you know repair their relationship, etc. You know, and that's what you get. And and uh, to an extent it works. It's it's a little hard for me to really gauge it because I I knew all this going into the movie. <laughs> That's <laughs> one of the reasons that I didn't want to spoil this movie for anybody. I wanted people to actually see it. Yeah, I, so it's, it, 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 it's, it's such an odd story that went on beyond the, behind the scenes. I, and it's really the only thing Hitchcock talked about. I thought it would be good to at least kind of kind of talk about some of the things that he talked about, such as um, having to work around the Hays Code or or, um, or even just this idea that, that uh, showing the audience what they already have suspected this whole time really isn't that – that dramatic um i thought that was a really good point point. and there's there's one last thing that i want to talk about i want to go back to that that glass of milk because they kept that scene but they changed the context obviously i'm assuming you've seen the movie by this point right so she she doesn't drink the milk but it's we also find out that it's not poisoned if you've seen the movie you know what i'm talking about but i'm going to describe it anyway just in case someone decided that they wanted to have the movie spoiled for them anyway which is fine i'm not judging um <laughs> Hitchcock, who we've talked about by now, um, really, really meticulously planned out every shot. And the shot he wanted for this was to shoot it way up high, up on the landing of the stairs. Now, if, you, if you're if you looking at this shot shooting down onto the ground floor over the banister, what you see is to the left is where the door is. And if you came through the door and took an immediate right, you'd go up these these stairs and come up on the landing where the camera is and then to the right of frame is the kitchen assumingly where cary grant at night with none of the lights on in the house walks out of the kitchen into the shadows walks across the ground floor toward the toward the entryway comes up the stairs and lands with the glass of milk right in front of the lens so it fills the frame Okay. Meanwhile, of course, the camera pans and tilts to follow him, of course. So let's walk through that shot. You've got Cary Grant way down there on a relatively wide lens, which means that glass of milk is tiny. But that glass of milk is part of what's carrying forward this suspicion, hence the title, in Joan Joan Fontaine's head of my husband is going to kill me. Let's go back to that problem-solving thing that we talked about in Foreign Correspondent, right? That glass of milk is crucial, but it is minuscule in that frame. Not to mention the whole house is dark. So how do you emphasize that little glass of milk? How do you make it so obvious that the audience has to follow it instead of just following the motion of Cary Grant? Well, the solution that Hitchcock came up with was actually quite elegant. What he did was he had his lead electrician put – a light and a battery in that glass of milk. And if you go back and watch the film, if you didn't notice it the first time, that glass of milk is glowing. Almost uh, phosphorescence or something. It's, it's, it's kind of eerie. And your eyes pretty much immediately go to that glass of milk because it's the brightest thing in the frame. And that's one of the things that, at least I've been told, our eyes will go to. Our eyes will go to eyes and our eye, or faces. Our eyes will go to what's in focus. And our eyes will go to what's brightest. So by illuminating the glass of milk only on its own, not a spotlight on it, but a light emanating from the milk, it becomes quite clear what we're supposed to be looking at. It builds up that suspicion in our head of what's in the milk, what's, what's going on, he's going to kill her, right? So there's some more problem-solving for you, not necessarily an effect. In the lighting side of this thing, we call it a practical effect or a, Probably. Or a gag. We'd probably call it a gag. Or maybe a practical effect. I don't know. Um, it's kind of a goofy one. We don't. I've never had to put a light in a glass of milk before. That's a little new for me. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, there's some more problem-solving for you. Those are really the only things Hitchcock ever talked about about this movie when he was asked about it. So this is all I have to give you. Um, this is probably a little bit shorter than I wanted it to be. I'm sorry. I'm um, sorry. We're going to get back on track with the next one, I promise. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to Hitchcock University. Um, we'll see it – or, yeah, we'll hold class again in a couple of weeks. Uh, remember, if you have any uh, questions that you want to hear on the show, uh, you can email me at uh, HitchcockUniversity at com. I have a Facebook Hitchcock University page. Uh, there's Twitter, Hitchcock underscore you and Instagram, which there's still nothing on it. <laughs> At at some point there will be though. I'll let you know when that happens. Uh, But that's Hitchcock underscore you. uh, Or no, excuse me. That's just Hitch underscore you. Um, Please leave uh, a rating or a review uh, wherever you listen to this if it's on SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, whatever it is. Uh, Yeah, thanks again and we'll hold class in a couple of weeks. Uh, Have a good one.